like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Ephesians 5 is where I'd like to direct your attention as we return to this book uh, this morning. Ephesians 5, I'm, I'm going to start reading in verse 15. I'm going to read from verses 15 through verse uh, 33. Ephesians 5, verse 15 through 33. Uh, this, then, is what Holy Scripture says. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ, is the head of the church his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Today we will begin, Lord willing, what will be a six-week series of messages based on this passage of Scripture on the topic of marriage. And, And among the congregation, I have noticed, because I have spoken to some of you about this, there is a varying level of anticipation about today. Some of you come with a great amount of curiosity. Here in this text, we find that dreaded word that starts with S and ends with admit. What does that mean? How does that work? What does it look like practically in a relationship? Some of you come not necessarily with curiosity, but a bit of desperation. You need help. You have some issues that you're working with, working through, and you can't do it. You don't seem to be making any progress, and you need help. Some of you maybe have some dread. You've heard information like this, and it doesn't seem to help you. Or maybe you just don't want to hear more about this morning what you don't have but really want, or what you do have and you don't want. 
Uh, this is not a marriage seminar. We're not going to be gathering for a marriage seminar over the next several weeks. And in fact, um, I hope to and plan to over the next several weeks say something that every single person needs to hear. Every person here needs. Uh, married people obviously perhaps need this most directly. Uh, marriage is, is hard. For my own good, I try to read regularly at some of the books that are written uh, about marriage. Uh, for a while, my goal was to read one or two a year. Um, and I'm always, uh, uh, when I read these books, I always come across things that I've read before. There are a few passages in the Bible that speak about marriage, and there's only so many things that could be said about those verses. And yet, still reading them, I'm reminded of, of things, of habits that I've developed, or paths that I used to walk in that I have neglected, that, that I need to, to shape up a little bit in. Single people need to learn about marriage. That might sound strange to you. Uh, you need to hear about it so you can understand adequately why you want to be married or why you don't want to be married. Uh, one of the most important factors in the satisfaction of a marriage is the expectations that you have coming into it. What do you believe your marriage is going to do for you? What do you believe marriage itself will do uh, for you? Understanding what the Bible says about marriage will help you understand if you want to be married for the right reasons. Do you know what the right reasons to want to be married are? And do you have them? Married people, single people, the church in general needs to hear about marriage. Paul writes here in these verses a lot about the church. In fact, it's hard to tell sometimes, is Paul writing about the church or is he writing about marriage? And the answer to that question is yes. Uh, there is material here about the role that both the church and marriage are supposed to play in God's plan for displaying his own glory. So, in fact, that's the goal of these six weeks. We want to uncover God's plans for marriage. And we're going to look in the Bible to find them. If you've been around here for a while, that should not sound as any, anything new. Uh, if you are new, though, to the church, it, it might surprise you. People are asking these days all kinds of questions about the nature of marriage. What it is. Who has the right to decide what it is? Who has the right to define what marriage is? The most pressing question of the day, obviously, and you know this too, is the issue of same-sex marriage. We're going to actually come to that, Lord willing, in September. Uh, but, but the foundation of our culture's understanding of marriage began crumbling long before anyone ever thought about same-sex marriage. We believe that God made marriage. It's His idea. It's woven into the fabric of the world He created. And uh, thus, we must listen to Him to find out what He says about marriage. What I want to do this morning is I want to do some foundational work. I want to talk about what marriage is for. I want you to understand a diverse set of truths that are central to, to build on for the week's that are to come. These truths are going to move back and forth between what marriage is and why, why God made marriage. And the cornerstone of our discussion is going to be verse 31 of chapter 5. For this reason, Paul writes, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. 
This may be the most central verse in the Bible on marriage. Paul quotes it here. Jesus, when he was asked about marriage and the nature, quoted this verse. This verse comes originally from the book of Genesis, where Moses describes and writes about the very first marriage that God made. Today what we're going to do is we're going to look here in Ephesians 5 uh, briefly, and then we're going to spend a good bit of time in Genesis where I want to uncover four truths about marriage. Four truths about marriage that are foundational. Uh, Here's the first one. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Verse 31 says that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. If you have something older than my translation of the Bible, your translation might not say be united. It might have that wonderful word cleave. We don't use the word cleave very much. Uh, But cleave in the Bible is a covenant word. It describes, uh, uh, the word cleave describes two people who enter into a relationship in a covenant. In marriage, specifically, it is a covenant of lifelong, it's a lifelong relationship where you are making promises about your future behavior. That's what the covenant nature of marriage is. This lifelong relationship where you make promises about your future behavior. Despite the changes and the challenges that will come, despite the things that you don't see coming down the road, when you get married, you are making promises about your future and what you are going to do, how you are going to behave in the future. All Christian marriage vows are in the future tense. They're not in the present tense. They're in the future tense. I will be this sort of person. In the book of Malachi, at the, at the end of, of the Old Testament, the prophet was confronting men. We won't look at the passage. I'm going to read it to you in a minute. Uh, Malachi was confronting men who had left their wives. Apparently, they were on the hunt for younger, more exciting partners, trophy wives. <laughs> and, and the prophet Malachi says to them, The Lord is acting as witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, she's the wife of your marriage covenant. Marriage is a covenant, and whether those people realize it, whether people who realize it or not when they get married, God is the witness to that covenant. He is overseeing that. What we find here in this concept that marriage is a covenant is, I think, the first great challenge of marriage and where the Bible's understanding of marriage cuts most deeply across our culture's understanding and expectations for marriage. Marriage, as God intended it, calls you out of yourself and focuses you for life on someone else. To get married is to promise that you are going to live for someone else, for their concerns, for what uh, the issues that they're facing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 7 to the Corinthian church, he says, when you get married you take up the task of pleasing your spouse for your lifetime. In his excellent book called The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller writes about this concept of covenant and how it confronts one of the most common ideas he hears about marriage. He pastors a large church in New York City filled with uh, young adults, and uh, one of the opinions he hears most often is this. Maybe you've heard this before. Uh, marriage is just a piece of paper. 
or it's just a ceremony, or it's just a legal status, and I don't need a piece of paper, and I don't need a ceremony, and I don't certainly need something that the county declares legal to live out my love for my boyfriend or my girlfriend. You ever heard a statement like that? If you haven't, you have not been listening. I don't need marriage. It's just a piece of paper. It doesn't matter. Some people actually even go a little further than that. They believe that marriage, rather than being an expression of love, actually hinders the freedom of love. Marriage hinders love. It makes love worse. Marriage is an institution and no one wants to be institutionalized. The law, the trappings of marriage, uh, it's suffocating. It it diminishes the thrill. It hinders the free-flowing expression of love. Marriage is like pouring water on the flames of romance. It's like corralling a wild stallion of love. That's, That's often what people say. I don't need a piece of paper to tell you I love you. They say that, but what they actually mean is something far more insidious. What they actually mean when they say that is... I love you, but not enough to give up my freedom. I love you, but not enough to make it official, not enough to make it public, not enough to to consign myself for the rest of my life to, to serving and pleasing you. When you marry someone, your options close. You can't just walk away. You're tied to someone else. And this diminishment of of freedom is something that, that even for love, you might not be willing to do. Mark Dever says that one of the idols that young adults in particular struggle with is the idol of adoption. Excuse me, the idol of options, not adoption. Adoption is wonderful. We love adoption. I'm talking about the idol of options. I'm out of practice, so any mistake I make, you can just forgive Uh, The idol of options. Um, You want to keep all of your options open as long as you possibly can. If if you make plans for this weekend, you might not be able to do something else. If you you make an arrangement on Thursday to do something on Friday, Friday afternoon something better might come along and you you might want to do that. If you make plans on Thursday, you can't do what you want on Friday. The idol of options. I want to keep all my options as open as long as I possibly can. And if you make a decision about marrying somebody or uh, choosing a college or choosing a major or, or moving to this city or joining this church, you're limiting yourself and you're not a free agent like you want to be. Uh, people who worship the idol of options are in the pursuit of self-fulfillment. I want everything I do and everything I pursue at all times to fulfill me, to satisfy me, to be for me. And if I promise myself to you for the rest of my life, I might not get as fulfilled as I want to be. So now instead of entering marriage as a covenant relationship, uh, we enter marriage as a consumer. As long as I get out of this relationship what I want, I'll stay. And as long as I'm fulfilled, and as long as the sex is frequent and exciting, as long as I have fun and I'm interested and engaged, I'll be here. And when that self-fulfillment ends, I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to look somewhere else for that sense of self-fulfillment. 
Uh, based on this notion of self-fulfillment, we talk in our culture about things like starter marriages. Have you ever heard that phrase? A starter marriage is your first marriage when you learn what you really need in a marriage partner. So, And once you figure that out, you end that marriage and go find someone who really will satisfy you. Or uh, we talk about stage-of-life marriages. It's silly to think that someone is going to be able to walk with you through all of the stages of your life. So you need one partner to have children and raise them with, and you need one partner to be an empty nester with, and you need one partner to be a retire with, and, and you need one partner to die next to. So you've got to find different people. If someone picks you to die next to, that's not a good sign, I'm thinking. Uh, uh, just different stages call for different sort of partners and why tie yourself down? In fact, in some countries they're talking about putting uh, time limits on marriage so that when you promise to marry somebody a marriage contract, automatically it will nullify after five years. And after five years you can decide if you want to re-up, if you want to sign the contract again. Uh, in contrast to that, God says that marriage is to be lifelong. You make promises for the rest of your life. Now, why is that? Why would He do that? Because God knows that counter to what you may believe, in order for marriage to be and to do all that it is supposed to do in your life and in the world that He made, marriage requires the security of a lifelong commitment. This, this week I read it in Mark uh, chapter 9. Jesus called to his disciples. He called them in Mark 9. He said, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. If you want to live, Jesus said, if you want real life, you have to let the life you think you are living go. If you try to save it, you'll lose it. Conversely, if, if, you, if you lose your life, you, you'll, you'll save it. That principle applies to following Christ, but it pervades all of, of Christianity. If you're trying to hold on to a self-fulfilling life you think you must have, and you are following your plans for a self-fulfilling relationship, you're going to lose. If you want real life, if you want to be really satisfied with your covenant partner, you promise to live for their sake, and you let go of your options, your dreams, your plans for self-fulfillment. It's the opposite of, of what you expect, isn't it? But if you enter marriage as a consumer, you will never build a relationship that provides you what you think you need. You, you'll only find real life, real marriage in that secure covenant. I could illustrate it perhaps this way. It's been an interesting weather summer, hasn't it? We have had, it seems, storm after storm come rolling through the county. I don't know how you feel about thunder and lightning storms. I love thunder and lightning storms. I love to watch them. I love to listen to them. Um, once or twice, I have been close enough to lightning. This probably wasn't very safe. I was close enough to lightning to hear it actually buzz through the air, and the thunder is almost instantaneous. Boom! That sound. I love to watch the lightning streak across the sky. I love to hear the rain pound on my roof. I love that, that sound, boom, boom, the thunder as it rolls across. It's great summer if you love storms. Some of you I know are hiding in closets. I know that. But I love thunder and lightning storms. Uh, it's, it's great. It's thrilling. But actually, the, 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 the lightning in the air is, is pretty useless. 
It's, it's nothing like the electricity that comes into my house. It's electricity in the sky, that's for sure. But there is electricity that comes into my house. And I can do all kinds of things with the electricity that comes into my house. In fact, I couldn't survive without the electricity that comes into my house. I know this is Lancaster County. Some of you are like, the Amish do. I know that. I'm not Amish, all right? Okay? I could not... And they cheat, all right? Let's be clear about that. I could not survive without the electricity that comes into my house. It keeps my food cold. It heats my food. It pumps water from the ground. It gives me light at night. It powers my computer, my phone. It gives energy to my hair dryer. I was just seeing if you're paying attention. The first stages of love are like a lightning storm. Pow, boom. First stages of love. Lightning. Beautiful. It's marvelous. It's exciting. It's suspenseful. It's unpredictable. That, 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 that unpredictable, suspenseful thrill is actually what makes extramarital affairs attractive. Because there's a suspense. You might get caught. There's a sense of danger. The first stages of love are like a lightning storm. It's exciting, but its uses are limited. The Bible is all for lightning-like love and romance. But God, for your good, for your survival, has made marriage a secure covenant so that it can bring electricity into your life in ways that will help you. See, as a married person, you cultivate the lightning and the thunder, but you live in an electric world. We're going to talk about that more in the weeks that are to come, but I'll end with this right now. Marriage is a covenant. All right, let's, let's move on. Second, marriage is a partnership. Marriage is a partnership. And here uh, we're touching on what marriage is for. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn me back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Genesis is the easiest book in the Bible to find. It's right after the table of contents. And I want you to turn me to Genesis 1 and 2. And I want to ask the question, what is marriage for? Why did God make marriage? Why did God make marriage? Well, if you ask somebody, what's marriage for? You might get a variety of answers. There is a very traditional Protestant answer to that question. What did God make marriage for? And the answer to that would be as an antidote for loneliness. God made marriage for friendship, for companionship. That's the most traditional and common Protestant answer to the question. It's based on Genesis 2.18, where God says... The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. He's lonely. I'll give him some company. Um, The companionship of marriage is good, but I don't believe that that's the reason that God made marriage. I don't think that fits the context here, which I'll show you in a minute. A second answer to the why question seems to be emphasized alternately by the Roman Catholic Church. They don't deny the companionship and presence, don't deny what I'm going to say, but this is what the Roman Catholic Church seems to emphasize. Marriage is for procreation, to have children. And you should have as many children as you possibly can. Having children is a good of marriage, but I don't believe that that's central to marriage either. 
What I want to do is I want to direct your attention to where the Bible first talks about maleness and femaleness, and it does so over in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. And I want you to think with me carefully through the text. We're going to do some good thinking here this morning. Here's a summary of God's work in creating human beings. All right, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There are basically in these verses two commands. Fill the earth and subdue it. That is, rule over the earth and populate it. Uh, We see two additional verbs in Genesis 2.15. Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work it and take care of it. These four things. Fill the earth, subdue it, take care of it, and work it. This is what Adam and Eve, maleness and femaleness, are to do together as image bearers of God. There too, if I can use a good Christian phrase, the Christians have used for a long time, exercise dominion over the earth. Exercise dominion. I think that the imagery here in the book of Genesis is that God has on the surface of the planet made this beautiful garden, this garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve, the man and woman, are put in there to work it and to keep it. And I think they're supposed to, as they fill and subdue the earth, expand the boundaries of the garden of Eden. This, is, this garden is the place where God walks with the man and the woman, where he communes with them, where God sets his foot on the earth, where he's known and honored as the creator, where his glory is known. And I think the man and the woman had the responsibility to subdue the earth, that is to spread the boundaries of the Garden of Eden so that the whole world becomes this beautiful garden where God walks and where God is known and where God is loved. My grandfather was a great gardener. He had a huge garden in his backyard. He loved rototiller season. And he would take care of his garden. And he mowed, he mowed miles and miles and miles of land. You, not literally, but you could stand in his backyard and it would stretch and stretch all the way down this big hill to a field that was right next door. Well, uh, after the, the summer after he died, uh, we started taking over the lawn, and eventually my grandmother said, you know, I, I think I can handle it, and she started mowing the lawn herself. One summer, a couple of years after he died, I went back to, it was at their house visiting, and I noticed something as I stood in the backyard. It was a lot shorter than it used to be. There was no garden anymore, and the field that had been next door had been allowed to encroach pretty far up into what had been my grandfather's immaculately mowed lawn. Uh, Instead of exercising dominion and spreading the glory of his perfect immaculate lawn all the way down to the borderline, the field had been allowed to encroach. What Adam and Eve are supposed to do, the man and woman are supposed to spread the Garden of Eden around the world so that God's glory, so that the knowledge of him, so that he would be known and loved all over the world. Now, if I could just for a moment trace this passage, this thought through the Bible. As the story of the Bible unfolds, the man fails in his responsibility to watch over and take care of the garden. He fails because he lets a snake in. 
you're going to let snakes in your garden. And instead of the knowledge of God's glory spreading over the earth, uh, the man spreads rebellion against the Creator and the earth. Until God comes along to Abraham and he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham, I'm going to send you, I'm going to give you a piece of land. And you know, Genesis uses the same words to describe that land that God promised to Abraham as, as Genesis does to describe the Garden of Eden. The promised land is a new Garden of Eden and God's going to use Abraham and his descendants from that place to again spread the knowledge of the glory of God around the world. Well, that fails too, as the story of the Bible continues, until we come to Jesus Christ Himself, who uh, dies and rises from the dead, and He starts this church. And what does the church, the Bible say about the church? The church is like a new temple, the place where God comes and communes with people, and the church now is responsible to spread the knowledge of the glory of God all around the world. Now, that, that's a little thinking here into the Bible, but I'm interested in what you do, how you fulfill this responsibility of dominion. I want you to think about your life and your work. To a certain extent, almost everyone here is involved in this dominion exercise. You are involved in some way of subduing the earth. Now, it's easy to see that if you're a farmer or if you build things. If that's your profession, it's easy to see how you do this. You take uh, an unprepared field or a, a useless, as far as uh, food, a field, and you plow it and you plant it and you harvest from it. Or you take a, an empty space and you fill it with a house or with an office building or with uh, an apartment of, of some kind. You are subduing the earth. If you are a teacher, it's maybe easy to see this. You are taking untamed minds and you're working with them, caring for them, subduing them. Whether your students realize it or not, you are actually in the process of shaping their minds so that by God's design, they will be able to read God's word intelligently and recognize God's work in the world. This is how we pray about school at my house. I know it's July, it's not good to talk about school, is it? But we, this is the way we pray about school. We pray, God, use their teachers to shape my kids' minds so that they're sharp thinkers, so that they can understand your word and your world. Exercise dominion. Subdue the earth. Everyone, unless you're a drug dealer or you own a brothel or you steal for a living, is involved in some way in fulfilling this command. And doing this calls for maleness, and femaleness. Now, follow me back to Genesis verse two, chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. And when God says it's not good for the man to be alone, he is not thinking about his condition of loneliness. He is not thinking about his psychological condition. He's thinking about his task. The man has a divine responsibility and he needs a partner. Not just any partner. He needs a partner who is suitable to him. Someone who matches him. So if, if all God wanted the man to do was to work, then he could have given him another man, right? Because men generally, I know this is Lancaster County, we raise tough women, I know that, but men generally can work longer and lift more things than women, right? Right? But, but God has a plan that He's going to give a, a suitable helper, a, 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 someone who matches Him, 
Someone who's different yet similar. Someone who will bring different strengths and different gifts to his life. Marriage is a partnership in which God brings two suitable creatures, male and female, together so that they can exercise dominion over the world he has made. Caring for it, filling it, spreading the realm into which God is known and loved. That's what marriage is. It's what marriage is supposed to accomplish. It's partnership. Now, the implications of this, I think, are stunning and and numerous. I'm going to mention three implications of that this morning. First, it calls you further out of yourself. It calls you out of yourself even further. If marriage is a covenant, you don't enter it as a consumer, it calls you out of yourself for someone else. Now, because marriage is a partnership under God, not only does it call you out of yourself for someone else, it calls you out of yourself for God's sake. For God's purposes. Uh, You are called out uh, to live not just for each other, but for God. You two together what God has called you to do in this passage. The friendship of marriage is great. Babies in marriage are wonderful and they're a necessary part of filling the earth. But they are good means, both of them meant to serve this goal of spreading God's reign, realm, where He is known and loved. Here's a second implication, I think, of that. Understanding this dominion at the center of marriage, it should help us by putting things in perspective. It should help us put things in perspective. You're going to have disappointments in marriage. Inevitably, you will find ways in which you and your partner don't seem to match. You'll wonder sometime if you made a mistake in who you married. Those disappointments will only have the weight to crush you if your marriage is only about your goals. If it's only about you and what you and maybe the other person can accomplish. If if your marriage is only about those things, when your expectations aren't met, it will crush you. But when you recognize that you and your, your spouse together are partners in accomplishing God's purposes you can get over those things. You can work through those issues. You can rebuild intimacy that you should have and that you long for. Here's a third implication. Uh, Some of you need to get married. Uh, In fact, probably most of you, if you're not already married, you need to get married. Um, Paul writes about the gift of singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. And I'm grateful for the single men and women in our church and the ministries that they have. They're significant, they're important, they're used by God in great ways. And for some, this is the best way that you can serve God as a single adult. I think, though, that Genesis 1 and 2 teach that the norm is that in order for you to serve God most effectively as a steward of the world he made, you need a partner to do it. To do this well, to spread the knowledge of the glory of God, whether you're a farmer or a teacher or a secretary or a missionary or a pastor, in order to fill the earth, subdue it, take care of it, and work it, you need a partner. Now, you've heard me talk about this before, haven't you? Um, I've spoken most often about the problems in our society associated with delaying adulthood. It's, it's, It's not healthy that the most frequent and um, most, most frequent and active per- users of video games are men between the ages of 18 and 34. That is not healthy. Uh, 
and, and for your own soul, uh, to, to ward against the ruin of your soul, you need to set aside childish things and enter the adult world. Uh, but now what I say to you, for God's sake, for God's purposes in the world, for the spreading of the glory, His glory and the earth, I say to you, get thee a wife. You have work to do. You've got to fill the earth. You've got to subdue the earth. You've got to plow it. You've got to plant it. You've got to build it. You've got to teach it. You've got to invest it. You've got to feed it. You've got to supply it. Whatever you do to spread the knowledge of the glory of God while you are doing it, find a partner to do it with you. Find a girl. Treat her wonderfully. And then go and talk to her dad and promise to treat her well for the rest of her life. Now, we'll come back to this partnership in, in a moment. I, but I have two more things that I want to say about what marriage is. Okay, number, number three. Uh, marriage is a challenge. Marriage is a challenge. Up to this point in the book of Genesis, the world is perfect. And then this is the way God made the world in Genesis 1 and 2, and it's beautiful and it's perfect. The environment is perfect. The man is perfect. The woman is perfect. He doesn't have any underwear and socks to leave all over the bedroom. Uh, she does not have any magazine covers at the grocery store to make her feel inadequate. I mean, the world is just perfect. Uh, uh, it did not last, though, this perfect world. In Genesis chapter 3, the man and the woman disobey God and they unleash devastation in the world. From a Christian perspective, this is what is wrong with the world. We are all guilty. We have all disobeyed our Creator. We do not live life the way He wanted. Ultimately, the answer to the question for a Christian of what's wrong with the world finds its root always in Genesis 3, our rebellion against God. And because of that, we have become objects of God's wrath because God is a good creator who is going to fix perfectly what we broke. Uh, Genesis 3.16, in Genesis 3.16, God tells us here about the consequences or how this brokenness that we introduced into the world is going to reveal itself. We find God's judgment. Marriage is supposed to be a blessing. It's supposed to be the seedbed of so much good that is going to come, uh, but it's marred. Look at Genesis 3.16. He says, To the woman he said, God speaking, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. They were supposed to fill the earth. Now filling the earth is going to be hard. It's going to hurt. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. You're supposed to be a suitable helper, but your desire for your husband, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Marriage is a challenge, but you don't need me to tell you that, do you? Do you? I mention here so that you know it's normal. It's biblical. Sometime if your wife or your husband says to you, why can't we get along? Look at him and say, it's biblical. It's been the human problem since the hour that this text came into existence. The, 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 desi the verbs desire and rule here, I think, are talking about the power struggle that takes place in a relationship. A, a wife desires to rule over her husband, and he responds with crushing tyranny. This is the struggle of many, the default struggle of most marriages. Every couple feels the tension of living in this Genesis 3 world, this brokenness. You didn't marry a perfect person, and neither did your spouse. 
In the midst of all this perfection, you and your, your partner are supposed to do all these things. You've got to buy insurance and you've got to get jobs and you've got to save money and you've got to cook food and you've got to take care of a house and you've got to raise children. There's all these things, these decisions to be made. And underneath all those massive decisions, there are hearts that are all confused about what it means to have a job and have a money and have friends and to raise kids. And it's just a, a mess. We're going to talk about this more in the next few weeks, but the, this tension exists. And you have to deal with this tension of brokenness, imperfection in some way. You will deal with it, trust me. My hope is that you'll deal with it intentionally, not haphazardly. My hope is that you won't fall into patterns of ignoring each other's sins, or fighting over each other's sins, or quitting because of each other's sins. I think the Bible indicates that a relationship that this close calls for frequent infusions of forgiveness, asking and receiving. It should be as natural as breathing to you in your marriage. You should be intentional about how you face this reality of sin because it's through your marriage that God wants to change you. Be careful over the next few weeks as we talk about these things. If you see your spouse uh, trying to do something different, in response to what we're studying in God's Word, be careful how you respond. Oh, you're trying again, huh? You crush them so easily. Well, it's about time you tried to do something like that. Would you be encouraging to them in the midst of, of, of our battles that we all have with unrighteousness and sin? Will you lift them up and, and encourage them as you work through this tension? I think this challenge, of this brokenness in male and female relationships is why the section on marriage in Ephesians 5 begins by talking about being filled with the Spirit. Everything that Paul writes about in marriage in all of chapter 5 is dependent upon the filling of the Spirit. Marriage in this broken world is a supernatural venture. I'm going to talk about in the next couple of weeks things that are impossible to do without the Spirit's presence. You can do only what Paul commands, submitting, loving, obeying, respecting, leading, following, as a manifestation of the Spirit's power and presence in your life. Marriage is a supernatural venture. There's one more statement that I want to make about marriage before we finish. Here it is. Marriage is a picture. Marriage is a picture. I said before that marriage is a partnership. You and your spouse together fill, subdue, care, and watch. They spread God's glory because we now live in a Genesis 3 world, this includes the concept of rescue. Rescuing the world. Rescuing the world by telling the world about what God has done to rescue us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that you do this rescue work as a, as a husband and wife is by living out this picture of Christ and the church that Paul describes in Ephesians 5. Paul describes it in detail. We're going to talk about it over the next two weeks. Wives who represent the church, the people for whom Christ died. Husbands who represent Christ, the Savior who died. We call this message, of course, don't we, the gospel. Marriages are supposed to be a gospel picture. The gospel, of course, that good news that God's Son has come, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross paying the penalty for our sins. He took in His body all we deserved 
for contributing to the corruption in this Genesis 3 world. He died, He rose again, He offers life and forgiveness to all who will receive it by faith by turning to Him with a conscious decision of dependence. We spread that message and people are supposed to see it in our marriages. Men, do your children know the Gospel better because of how you love their mother? Do they see in you the Gospel? So that someday in Sunday school when, someone's, when one of our fine teachers is talking to them about Jesus dying on the cross and the sacrifice that he made, one of your kids says, yeah, I know what that's like. I see my dad do it all the time. Or, or, or when, when the Bible's word is issued, the invitation to follow Christ, to submit to his authority, to turn from sin and to turn from him, do your kids, ladies, say, that's, that's how my mom is with my dad. That's what she does. It's how it works at home. This gospel makes perfect sense because I see it lived out in my parents. Is your relationship with your spouse a help to the gospel for your neighbor or a hindrance to the gospel for your neighbor, for your kids, for your unbelieving brother-in-law who doesn't understand? Does that sound impossible? It sounds hard. Studying marriage is again an opportunity for us to affirm our dependence on and our faith in Jesus Christ. It's an opportunity again for us to think deeply and carefully about the gospel, to celebrate Christ's loving sacrifice. We do that because only the gospel has the power to call you out of yourself. Only what Christ has done has the power to call you out of yourself to live for someone else under God's purposes. If there is a secret to marriage, and there's not really, but if there is, it's found for us in greater joy and greater familiarity with this message, this message that Paul calls a profound mystery. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you again this morning asking you that you would make us gospel people. We want to be gospel people who love the gospel and live the gospel out. Most especially and relevantly today, Father, we pray that you would grant us gospel marriages. Father, in the weeks that are to come, we ask for a great infusion of your grace. That you might build in our congregation husbands who, who love wives, their wives like Christ loved the church. Uh, that, that you might prepare our young men to assume this responsibility as we consider again uh, Paul's call and Christ's sacrifice. Father, we, we pray to you, we sing to you, we are dependent upon you. We want to follow our head who is Jesus Christ and I pray that you would uh, cultivate wives who follow husbands like the church follows Christ. Oh, this is the supernatural work. But God, we're concerned about it, not just for our own happiness, but for the sake of Millersville and Manor Township and uh, um, uh, Willow Street and Hempfield. And we're, we're concerned for it for the sake of our neighbors. We want to testify to Christ and how we live with one another. So for their sake and for the sake of your reputation, we ask that you would infuse us with supernatural grace that will stun us all. 
Help us be husbands and wives who spur one another on in this task. We pray in dependence upon you. And together God's people say, Amen.